0: To read from the complete Jewish Bible. There may be four or five words that you're not used to hearing. You know that you can follow in your Pew Bible, um, but I'm asking God to especially bless our ears and our understanding that we will understand this word and take it to heart. Romans 4, 13 to 25. For the promise to Abraham and his seed, that he would inherit the world, did not come through legalism, but through the righteousness that trust produces. For if the errors are produced by legalism, then trust is pointless, and the promise worthless. For what law brings is punishment, but where there is no law, there is no violation. The reason the promise is based on trusting is so that it may come as God's free gift, a promise that can be relied on by all the seed, not only those who live within the framework of the Torah, but also those with the kind of trust Avraham had, Avraham Avinu for all of us. This accords with the Tanakh where it says, I have appointed you to be a father to many nations abraham is our father in god's sight because he trusted god as the one who gives life to the dead and calls non-existent things into existence for he was past hope yet in hope he trusted that he would indeed become a father to many nations in keeping with what he had been told so many will be your seed his trust did not waver when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered that Sarah's womb was dead too. He did not, by lack of trust, decide against God's promises. On the contrary, by trust he was given power as he gave glory to God, for he was fully convinced that what God had promised, he could also accomplish. This is why it was credited to his account as righteousness. But the words, it was credited to his account, were not written for him only. They were written also for us, who will certainly have our account credited too, because we have trusted in him who raised Yeshua our Lord from the dead. Yeshua, who was delivered over to death because of our offenses and raised to life in order to make us righteous.
1: Amen. There's really not much to add to what Sandy already has told the kids this morning. But I have promised Japheth that I would fill the hour And he trusts me, so let's talk about faith. Fifteen years ago, I sat in the office of a physician not too far from this church as he carefully studied an MRI of my brain. Hmm, he said. He put up a couple more films in a different part and studied them. Then he turned and faced me. This is not good, he said. In fact, this is really bad. You have a brain tumor that is pushing down on your brain stem. As I struggled to take in the gravity of the words, he continued. From your medical chart, I see that you don't smoke, you don't drink, you don't do drugs, you've had no radiation therapy to your head, and you have no family history of brain tumors. But you do eat too much cheese." He stood up, smiled, walked to the door, and began to leave the room. Wait, doctor, I said, I've got a tumor in my head. What's your plan? Isn't there something we can do about this? Oh, he replied, I know you came to me because I'm a neurosurgeon, but I don't do surgery anymore. I just review charts and judge the merits of the case. Clearly, you've got a major problem but I forgive you. That's great, I said with some sarcasm, but I'm beginning to stumble when I walk. I'm getting headaches every afternoon. My vision is starting to blur. I used to be tarp as a shack, but now I feel drain damaged. I need help. Yes, he said, I know. I predict that this will continue to get worse. In fact, it probably will kill you. But at least you'll know you're forgiven. He stepped out of the room and closed the door. For you young folks in the congregation or watching online, that story is an allegory. It mixes real-life events with fantasy to deliver a message. It's a narrative with an underlying lesson. The word allegory comes from the Greek word that means I'm making this up for your own good. (laughs) Maybe. I use that allegory, though, to set things up for my next claim, which is also an allegory. We all have brain tumors. We're not quite right. There's something wrong with the way we think, with the way we behave, with the way we interact with each other. We distrust or disbelieve in God, and we ourselves can't be fully trusted. Now, I've been told all my life that the solution to this problem is that we need to have our sins forgiven. And that's why Jesus came and died on the cross for us. I don't believe that anymore. I do believe that we've been forgiven. Ellen White says that when Christ prayed for his tormentors and asked forgiveness, that he, his prayer embraced the world. It took in every sinner that had lived or should live from the beginning of time to the end of the world to all forgiveness is freely given. In the story of the prodigal son, it's also clear that the father forgave the son long before he returned home and tried to confess and repent. In fact, the father never, never even let him finish his confession. He interrupted him and called to his servants, hurry, go and get him a coat, my best one, and tell the cooks to start preparing a feast. So if our sins have been forgiven, what's the problem? The problem is that forgiveness alone doesn't do away with sin. Forgiveness by itself doesn't change us. We still have tumors of distrust growing inside our skulls. It's like the doctor forgiving me and then walking out of the room knowing that eventually I was going to die and doing nothing about the root cause of my problem. The root cause of sin is distrust. It's a malignancy that permeates our characters. And forgiveness alone doesn't remove it. Christ didn't tell Nicodemus that he needed to be forgiven. He told him he needed brain surgery. He needed a complete makeover. He needed his tumor of distrust surgically removed. In Romans 3, Paul defines these metaphorical tumors as the power of sin and then describes their consequences. He concludes by saying that we have all sinned and have fallen short of the beauty of God's plan for us. In chapter 4, our text for today, he concentrates on Abraham who he presents as one example of a person who trusted God. Although Abraham is called our spiritual father and the father of faith, he didn't live a charmed life. In fact, there's nothing magical about the plan of salvation. Sometimes Abraham trusted God. Sometimes Abraham didn't trust God. He was a nomadic shepherd. He had no disciples. He performed no miracles. He wielded no kingly power. And he made no prophecies. And yet it has been argued that he was the most influential human being that ever lived. He is still viewed as the spiritual father of over half the people on the earth. The faiths of Islam, Christianity, and Judaism all view him as their forefather. But his lack of faith also led to the PLO, Hamas, and Hezbollah, and a continual war in the Middle East. Although Abraham was a friend of God, he needed a class, in remedial religion. When I was a sophomore in high school, my roommate and I signed up for an elective remedial reading class. We really didn't need to take it, and it turned out we were the only ones in the class. We thought it was pretty funny. We figured we'd get credit for reading, See Dick Run. Run, Dick, run. See Dick and Jane run. Sally sees Dick and Jane run. It would be a piece of cake, and the automatic A grade would help our GPAs. Our teacher, Mrs. Nesmith, though, was no fool. In our first session of class, she said something like this. You boys think you're pretty cute, don't you? This class is supposed to be for freshman kids who can't keep up with the pace of high school reading assignments. But you've registered now, and I'm going to make you work. Instead of this being a remedial class, it is now officially a speed reading class. We're going to study the various techniques of speed reading, and your final grade will depend on the number of words you can read per minute with a 95% comprehension when tested. This will be fun, won't it, boys? She pushed us, and we did work hard. And yet, it turned out to be one of the most valuable classes I took in high school. It enhanced my love of reading, and while I didn't keep up with all of the techniques that we learned, the lessons helped me through college and medical school, and I still love to read. Don't tell my wife, but I still try to read at least one or two books every week. Thank you, Mrs. Nesmith. But Abraham's remedial class in spiritual living began with his learning to trust God and his promise that he and Sarah would have a son. This is the story that Paul focuses on in the latter part of Romans 4. A promise has several important qualities. Behind any promise is the character and the competence of the one who is making the promise. You have to be able to trust that they have the power to do what they're promising and that they have the will to do it. It's also important to remember that the value of trust is not in the person doing the trusting. It's entirely and exclusively dependent on the person being trusted. This is an extremely important spiritual point. There is no merit in our trusting or having faith in God. All of the merit is the trustworthiness of the character of God. We are not saved by our faith. We are saved by God and by our trusting God. By the time we reach Abraham's story in Romans 4, we're told that he had finally learned that God was trustworthy he also was fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he had promised. God's power has mainly been manifested in his ability to create or to bring things into being that aren't there or to recreate his ability to give life to the dead. Paul essentially tells us that God resurrected Adam's dead loins and Sarah's dead womb and created the promised son. Because Abraham trusted God, God said, That's good. That's what I want from my friends. You truly are my friend, Abraham. This is summarized in James 2.23, where James says, Abraham trusted God. He was set right with God, and he became God's friend. But here's the cool part for us. Paul then compares this story of Abraham to what God has done for us through Christ. He resurrected Christ from the dead and created in us a new heart and a right spirit if we trust him. Thus, we are set right with Him. If we trust Him, we are justified as the promised sons and daughters of Christ." I cheated just a little bit and sneaked over into chapter 5 for that last part. So James 2.23 could now say, Mark, or Mary Lou, or Japheth, or Peter, or Jan, or Matt, or Diane, Trusted God. They were set right with God. They became God's friends. In John 15, 15, Jesus tells his disciples that he wants to treat them like friends, not like servants, because servants don't know what their master is doing. Jesus tells his disciples, though, that I have told you everything about my father. Friends are very special. Servants, just servants, just do what they're told so they'll get paid. Some Christians seem to be happy in that role. All they want is to get paid. But Jesus wants us to know what he's doing, wants us to get involved with him with no concern for the payoff. I've only had a handful of what I would call best friends in my life. And at the risk of embarrassing him, let me tell you about my relationship with one of my friends, Gordy Gates. Gordy and I have been friends for almost 30 years. I have followed him road biking, mountain biking, snowshoeing, cross-country skiing, hiking, and canoeing. I say followed him because he loves to have a clear view ahead of him. And with his long legs and his excellent physical fitness, he is well able to stay ahead of me. The only time I've ever seen somebody get ahead of him or heard about it was when he let Diane go first when they were scuba diving into a cave with a shark. (laughs) Gordy and I have worked together, we've traveled together, we've worshipped together, and we've argued with each other. I know he doesn't like mushrooms or board games. I know he hated the movie Napoleon Dynamite, but loved Dumb and Dumber. Go figure. I know about some of the heartaches he's faced and some of the things that have brought him great joy. I believe he's one of the best prosthodontists in the world, but I still would tell him not to screw up if he was going to work on the teeth of the Princess of Tonga again. I trust him with my teeth. I would trust him with my money, my reputation, my wife, my kids, and my life. I would not, however, trust him to drive if we were near the Iranian border, as Don Brown did. His interest in finding archaeological sites far outweighs his better judgment at times. That's just one friendship. We've spent a lot of time together in many different situations. We've shared thoughts and ideas. We've learned about each other's idiosyncrasies. We've laughed and celebrated together. We've wept and mourned together. I trust Him because I've learned that He's trustworthy, mostly. We are to be God's friends. To do that, we have to do the same thing that Gordy and I have done. We have to spend time together. Intelligent faith, or trust, is bent on shared experiences. Trusting God is known in the Bible as knowing Him. The best way to know Him is to spend time in the Bible. We can also catch glimpses of Him in nature, but the law of tooth and claw sometimes obscures the view. Rarely, and never with me, God actually speaks to us. But it's so rare that we have to be extremely careful and make sure and check whatever He has said to us with what the Bible says. If the voice in your head disagrees with the words in the Bible, the voice in your head may be an undigested bit of beef a blot of mustard, a crumb of cheese, a fragment of underdone potato, to quote Dickens' Scrooge. As with any friendship, we've got to establish trustworthiness on both sides. Can I be trusted to be loving, joyful, peaceful, patient, kind, good, faithful, gentle, and self-controlled? No. But it is a law that human nature changes as we behold. By beholding, we become changed. We become like the things we love and admire. So if I focus on Christ and spend time getting to know Him, I will become more and more like Him. It's a natural consequence of learning to know Him. And when I become Christ-like, I will be obedient to God's commandments. I like how the complete Jewish Bible calls this trust-grounded obedience. Well, I can't be trusted, but can God? We'll never know unless we spend time together with Him. Once again, the prime place to do this is in reading His Word under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, always asking, what does this tell me about God? And as we study Christ and His death on the cross, I believe we see the great physician, the master neurosurgeon at work. I believe one of the main objectives of His death on the cross was to establish that He is trustworthy. As I said earlier, forgiveness is not the problem. God forgives us freely. As we see His goodness, then that leads us to repentance. The problem, though, is that we still have tumors of distrust in our brains. On the cross, Christ skillfully and surgically dissected away any reason for distrust. Satan had said that sin does not lead to death. Christ said, Watch, I will die as sinners die. Satan said, Well, if you do die, it's because God is going to kill you. Jesus said, Watch and see how my Father is involved in my dying like a sinner on the cross. He will sadly let me go just as He let other sinners go under the wrath of God in chapter 1 of Romans, verses 24, 26, and 28. Here in Romans four twenty-five, the exact same word is used for the wrath of God toward Jesus on the cross. And as He sadly lets me go, I will cry, My God, my God! Why have you forsaken me? Satan said that love was not a strong enough principle on which to govern the universe. On the cross, Jesus said, watch what happens to my countrymen when they attempt to obey God through fear as a powerful stranger. They will kill the lawgiver and rush home To keep the law. Can God be trusted? Can we put our faith in Him? Yes, and the cross proves it. He wants us to be His friends, and He will save all of His friends. Fifteen years ago, I sat in the office of a physician, not too far from this church, as he carefully studied an MRI film of my brain. Hmm, he said. He put a couple of more films up on his view box, studied them, and then turned and faced me. This is really not good, he said. In fact, this is really bad. As I struggled To grasp the meaning of what he said, he continued, From your medical chart, I see that you don't smoke, you don't drink, you don't do drugs, you've had no radiation therapy to your head, and you have no family history of brain tumors. That's good. I don't care how much cheese you eat. He sat down and pulled his stool closer to me and looked directly in my eyes. You have a brain tumor, he said. It's an odd-looking tumor. I don't know what type it is from the films, but there are signs to indicate that it may be benign. That's good. This is going to take a lot of work on the part of both of us, and I believe we're going to have to work together for at least five years. We're going to become good friends. Here's my proposal for you. First, we'll put an uh, EKG monitor on your heart. We'll start some IVs into your veins for fluids. We'll give you some medicine to put you to sleep. That's the good part. You'll be asleep. Then we'll put a catheter into your bladder and I will shave the hair off the back part of your head. I'll then make an eight or nine inch cut into your scalp down to the bone. I'll use a saw then to cut away a four or five inch square piece of your skull and take it out. I'll then make a cut into the lining of your brain. We'll take out a piece of the tumor and we'll send it to a pathologist to see what kind of tumor it is. If it's what I think it may be, I will then ask my partner to come assist me, and for the next 11 or 12 hours we will slowly and carefully burn away the tumor and chip it out until we have moved all that we can without damaging any brain tissue. I'd say that there's a 70% chance that you're going to be deaf in your left ear because this tumor has grown over the acoustic nerve but we'll do our best to spare it. There's also a chance that we might damage some of the healthy brain tissue and that you may have some residual deficits from that. Of course, you also might die. However, when we think we've gotten all of the tumor, we'll slide a catheter into the center of your brain to measure the pressure inside your skull we'll lay the piece of bone back into the opening, we'll staple closed your scalp, and that's when your work starts. It will take you months to recover. You may lose your hearing, as I said. You may never get your balance back again. You may continue to have headaches, at least for a while. You may need some further therapy for some of the deficits that we may cause but I believe we can save your life, but I need you to trust me." I took a deep breath and looked at my wife. We both had tears in our eyes. I trust you, doctor.
0: When can we get started?